And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome back to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, September 15th. This is Stephen Nesbitt filling in this month for Derek Van Riper, and I'm joined as always by Keith Law. Keith, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Keith, we've got a busy show today. We'll see what we get to. On today's show, we're going to get into the big news out of Boston right here in my backyard. Chief Baseball Officer Heim Bloom fired. Uh, GM Brian O'Halloran has been offered a spot elsewhere in the organization. We'll see if he ends up taking it. We're going to touch on some recent promotions and debuts, and later in the show, we'll get to Keith's mea culpas, players he was wrong about. But first, a post-mortem on the Heim Bloom era in Boston. Didn't go real well until uh, before he was canned on Thursday morning with one season left on his five-year deal. Uh, the breakdown. Pete Abraham of the Boston Globe uh, did this math for us. Brian Char- uh, Ben Charrington got 1,393 days in office. Dave Dombrowski got 1,493 days. And Heim Bloom got 1,417 days. Uh, all roughly 3.8 years, according to Pete's math there. Um, so the bottom line is, is the Red Sox were a very 500 team under Bloom. 267 and 262 no titles. They had that surprise run in 2021 where they were a couple wins away from the World Series. Um, but this started with, I started with trading Mookie Betts, and that's a rough first step. Um, it was it was a, under a directive to shed payroll, get in a more manageable place, I suppose they thought, um, from a payroll perspective, build up the farm system that had been gutted with Dave Dabrowski in the way that only Dave Dabrowski can. And, um, and it, we end up with a team today that has a nice offense, some top-level uh, hitting prospects, uh, but bad pitching, mostly, and bad defense. Not really the team we expect to see in Boston gear in and out. So you wrote about this. Where where do you sit, I guess, 24 hours after we heard this news? Yeah, I'm going to read. Where was this? Somebody just tweeted at me. Bloom was dealt a bad hand but played it poorly. And I think that's fair. Like the yep. point of my column today was not to say that he is without blame. Or that he handled, that he did a fantastic job. I think he had things that worked, and I think he had things that didn't work. Um, but the bottom line is, I think Bloom, especially given the limited amount of time he was there, there's probably not much he could have done that would have avoided this fate, given that ownership just isn't willing to spend money. Um, the whole time he was there, they signed only two free agents to deals of over two years, and neither has worked out. Uh, Yoshida is looking like probably an extra outfielder at this point. He's struggling to get to a, to one war this year because he's such a bad defender also. And Trevor Story, who's been hurt and just hasn't played very much and you know, certainly hasn't worked out. And all of this comes back to Bloom inherited a, a, a roster and a farm system with very, very little pitching in it. And nothing he's really done or really did while he was there did anything to change that. Um, and so I think you, you want to split the blame a little bit and you can talk yeah. about how much goes in each direction, but ultimately they didn't go outside for help. And since if you look at the entirety of the system, all players who are under control to the Red Sox going into 2020, there's no way you look at that and think there's a contending rotation in here somewhere. So they have to go externally. And he didn't clearly did not have the authority to go out and spend big on a high-end pitching free agent. So he tried to play in the mid to lower tiers of the free agent market, but really the lower tiers for pitching, and had a little success, but not enough. And at the same time, as I pointed out, they just don't draft pitching high, and they don't sign international pitching, uh, international free agents, uh, to big dollar figures either. They have clearly, whether this was him or somewhere else, there's, there's clearly a philosophy there that says you do not commit big to pitching. And I understand some of the reasons for that, but like someone's got to throw the ball or you end up 
like the 2023 Red Sox. Right. And you're saying I'm, I'm paying for the mistakes you made in that, in that arena, right? You, you gave David Price a ton of money. You gave uh, Chris Sale a ton of money. Um, you know, th- that's, that sales situation could have worked out wonderfully for them, except they handed him an extension. He got injured and, and it all went sideways. And so the, the, I, there's an extensive reading list for anyone who's interested in this, uh, on the athletic, there's, um, you know, our, our Boston Bureau wrote a ton on this. Uh, Steve Buckley was, uh, wrote a column today that I think does a pretty effective job of pointing out the other people who could handle a little bit of this blame here. Um, uh, is that John Henry, the principal owner, Tom Werner, the chairman, uh, Sam Kennedy, the the president and CEO, he all has they all they all uh, sort of take some uh, their share of the blame in this one. There's a lot of stuff here, including what Keith has. But bottom line, Keith, this is a this is an organization that dropped from uh, top of the payroll charts 243 in that 2019 to 181 today, and they're middle of the pack. They're 13th right now. And so I saw um, someone mentioning on your story today that basically like, well, look the uh, the Rays and the Orioles did it. They're winning with low payrolls. So so why couldn't we expect Heim to do it? And I think you can expect Heim to have done a better job of it. But he is a guy who, um, in some ways, is the antithesis of, of Dombrowski, right? He stood pat at trade deadlines. He didn't do as much as people wanted. The roster was, instead of stars, a lot of spare parts at times. Like, surprising to see some of the guys they would put in the middle of that lineup. Um, and the downside of trying to build rebuild a farm system at the expense of a major league roster at times is that a big market team fan base, even ownership demands wins. And so you have to be able to do both. And he wasn't able to do both at once, get major league wins to a playoff level and rebuild the farm system. So the farm system's in a nice spot. Um, I, and also their, their luxury tax is reset. Good for you. But what does that all mean? It just means it's a great job for somebody else, right? Right. That's what I think is that somebody else walks in now where the farm system it's in a lot better shape now than it was seven or eight months ago, right? They've had they had a good, really good draft this year. They've had several position player prospects take really nice steps forward. Um, you know, I was very down on the system coming into the year, and the main reason I said I was was that there's just basically no pitching in the system. That's still true, but the position player group took a really nice step forward, so that's something. Um, it means that at some point they'll have some kind of surplus. They're going to have more position players ready for the majors. This might not be 24. This might be more for 25, but maybe the way guys are getting to the majors so quickly now, maybe it is before the end of 24. They're going to have more players than they're going to have spots. And that to me says, great, trade some for pitching. It's kind of like what we've been saying about the Orioles for several years now, which they did do a little bit. They traded for Cole Irvin. They traded for Jack Flaherty. Neither has worked out to me. Those aren't the best examples, but that's the idea, right? You, If you build, 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 focusing on the position player side because you're scared to draft or sign amateur pitchers, at some point you have to go get them some other way. So either you, you spend or you trade all of your position player inventory, and they do. They have such a surplus building up there that I think they will have the uh, opportunity to do that, which again makes it a great job for someone else. This is not like walking in to... Uh, you know, a, a scorched earth farm system with an expensive and old major league roster. It's probably a middle of the pack farm system. It is um, a major league roster that's flawed, but also not super expensive. There's not a lot of long-term commitments on that roster. So if ownership does become willing to spend again, um, you're not tied down to a bunch of bad contracts and they'll, they will have some room to either extend guys they have or go externally. So there's there's quite a bit that I think is attractive about the job, even just ignoring the fact that most people are like, well, Boston, right? Lead the Red Sox, of course, that's a great job. Yeah, not always, right? You would think leading the Angels, for example, would be a great job. Huge market, uh, you know, at the moment, at least two of the best players in the history of baseball are there. Yeah, but you got to work for that guy. And maybe that makes that job less appealing. I don't think Boston has any of that, but I do think if you're walking into interview for the president or GM job there, you got to ask too, okay, what's going on? What's going on with the payroll? And, and frankly, what's going on with this pitching thing? Is that coming from the top? Did ownership say stop drafting pitching high because we're tired of these guys not working out? Or was that a bloom thing? Um, there, there are definitely questions I would want to ask. I'm not interviewing for this job, obviously. I'm just saying hypothetically, <laughs> these are things I would ask if I were in that room. Yeah, another thing you might want to ask is, uh, what is my leash here? Because you just signed a guy to have a five-year deal, and then, um, listen, I, I understand there's urgency here, right? This is a, a fan base that requires winning, and it's an owner space, um, um, an ownership that has high expectations. But also, look what you're, look what you're asking. I'm not, and I'm not advocating for Heim Bloom 
to, you know, be given an extension or something. Um, but the, the fact is you asked him to drop to a middle level payroll, the, 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 uh, counter argument to like the, the Tampa and Orioles thing, the obvious thing is, well, Orioles are a terrible example. They, they, they tore everything down to the studs to pay yep. nothing. Right. They, they look at their, I mean, we'll get to, to, um, uh, a call up they just had, but their, their lineup is like almost all guys they brought up the last two years. Um, yeah. with a, with a, a couple lot of, of them, exceptions, uh, mostly not exclusively, right. Guys, they drafted, they drafted really high a bunch of times. They've got a great success rate with those picks, so I'm not criticizing them, but I'm just saying that's not the Red Sox situation. Right? Yeah. They have um, – because they also did the same thing. right? It's position players, position players, position players. This year was the first year in the draft, I think under Mike Elias, that they kind of eased up and said, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll look at some pitching here. Great, great. They're in that position to do that, and it's also good to see them – sort of just expand a little bit because do you do you know end up artificially limiting your playing pool but they they've done really really well with high picks they've had few if any outright whiffs with some of their higher picks um in in quite some time and maybe not at all under elias and i mean so i, I it, it's the red sox could have had a better success rate on some high picks but at the same time, they didn't pick as high as the Orioles did or have the pools that the Orioles did, the bonus pools that the Orioles did. So it's not a great comparison. Yeah. Um, and the Rays you know, are even be... worse. As a comparison. As a comparison, because yes. everyone wants to be the Rays for a reason. The Rays are getting poached left and right for a reason. Yeah. And, and they stay good. good. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it's clearly not one person. <clears throat> so so they're, they're doing what everyone wants to do. I get it. Everyone, But guess what? These other the people who are poaching have the advantage that the, the Rays don't, which is to spend whatever they want. Now, well, did the, the, that's the Dodgers, right? The, did Dodgers the Dodgers poached the guy who set up the, the system and the culture in Tampa, brought that to L.A., started spending money. Yeah, and, they didn't drop They didn't drop his payroll to 15th? No, they did not. Last huh. I checked, Dodgers hmm. are, they, the Dodgers are still spending money. Yeah, so there's there's a path here, right? The the Giants didn't yep. go get Farhan Zaidi and then and then drop his payroll the twentieth, right? And so right. they're they're take yes, take the smart people, hire them away, uh, bring their ideas, make your whole system better from the bottom to the top. Um, but you're also might want to take advantage of the fact you're the Boston Red Sox. Uh, as, as the kicker of your story went, Boston freaking Red Sox, yeah. and start acting like it. Spend like you're the Boston Red Sox, and have Bloom or whoever. Uh, build the the farm system at the same time. I think both are possible. Well, that's the, the you know I mentioned Mike Rickard and Eddie Romero, two internal guys who yep. are, are very highly regarded in the industry. I know both guys. I think highly of them. They have track records. I mentioned James Click as somebody who's had success in this top job and is currently a free agent. Um, I saw somebody, I don't know if it was one of our writers, so I apologize, but mentioned like Chris Antonetti and Dave Forrest, who are, you know, that's kind of the Andrew Friedman thing, right? Go get somebody who's got experience in the job but has been doing it in a small market environment, bring them to Boston. Okay, great. I don't care any of those guys. It doesn't matter if you're going to say, yeah, but we're still running a mid-level payroll. You're not a mid-level team. You're not in a mid-level market. And so there's really no good reason to be running payrolls that low when you're trying to win. If you're in a situation where you're saying this is a rebuilding or retrenching or whatever you want to call it, this is not a year where we're trying to win, fine. Those are years where you might say we're less inclined to spend. But the Red Sox haven't said that. As far as I can tell, the intention was to contend pretty much every year, and they still haven't spent. And and yes, when Heim did go externally, uh, his larger expense, his larger contracts have not worked out so far. But that's also not an argument to stop doing it. That's an argument to make different, better decisions. And if you want to say it's an argument to change the decision maker, fine. I'm open to that. I, my column was not intended to be some kind of like absolution for Bloom because his tenure was pretty mixed. My point was it kind of doesn't matter who you hire if you're yeah. also telling them you can't go out and buy pitching because I don't see where this team – if they don't go out and buy pitching, I don't know where they're going to get the pitching to contend in the next three years. Yeah. 
Yeah. And as we look at the, the candidates, I've been looking all over the, the vast internet to see what are the names we put out there on our site, um, on the Boston Globe and other sites. And it, it runs a gamut, right? Because theoretically, this is a job that anybody should want. Uh, any GM of a, of a not large market team should want, but you're right, they have to answer that question of how are we going to spend and how much leash do I have here to figure things out? Um, and so the you know Brian Sabian has been named as a former GM who's from the area. The Boston Red Sox tend to like People from the area, I don't know how much that matters. I mean, Neil Huntington is available if you want to get a New Hampshire guy. Uh, I don't think that should really uh, determine uh, what you what you do here. Uh, Sam Fold has been mentioned, the Phillies GM at this point. Um, he hasn't really had experience as the top, top guy. He's currently, just despite being called the GM, uh, the number two in command in Philadelphia. Um, and so they're really GMs, AGMs, like every every name is out there right now because any almost anybody should want this job. Um, and then the interesting one is Alex Cora has been mentioned and he hasn't ruled out that he's interested in the job. Um, but for me, uh, he may want the job. He is a smart guy and he's had some, some, you know, good experiences at every level of the, of, um, of, of, you know, playing, coaching and and managing. But, um, I just feel like there's so many options out there. I, I don't know why you'd go promote the manager to the top of the baseball. He did make start. something, make some comment yesterday. I think it was to Jen McCaffrey. I think that's where I ended up seeing this, where it was, but I, but I apologize. It may have been to somebody else, but it was essentially like, that's for the future, right? Yeah. I'm not thinking or talking about that right now. I worked with Alex for several years at ESPN. He's a pretty thoughtful guy and it would not surprise me at, a fall, at all if internally he was saying that's not, right for me right now i'm not ready that's not what i want right now whatever it is i would not surprise me at all if he thought that do i think he'd be a good gm yeah i do um but i could also see him but i don't you know it's a little hard because he's not also had that kind of front off experience that you typically would like to see in somebody to be a gm or president of baseball ops those two internal candidates i mentioned rickard and romero They've both had several years running entire departments in a front office. Rickard ran amateur scouting. Romero ran international scouting. I think that is a huge, huge thing to look for when hiring. Somebody who's actually run a department. I'm not that picky about what department it is. And I guess you could argue being a manager is running a department on some level too. But it is leading a large group of people in in both amateur scouting in any of the scouting departments this would be true for pro scouting too this would be true for player development you're leading a group of people you don't see very much it's kind of like running the athletic right we are all over the place and managing people you don't see every day adds an additional challenge and so to me that is one of the things i would most want to see on the resume of somebody i was looking to hire here obviously you want to know about their philosophy and you'd like to know you know get some idea of um, you know, how they feel about either certain analytical questions or draft philosophy, things like that. But it, the, I'm much more interested in the resume than the interview. And the, probably the first thing I would look for in a resume is, has this person led? Have they run a department of many people and then ha- hopefully had some su- success in that job too? And you know, I would even want to reach out to people who worked for them and say, hey, what was it like? Would you work for this guy? Oh, man, I'd take a bullet for that guy. I would work for that guy. I'd follow him anywhere. That's the type of person I'd want to hire. All right, last one for you. If I were to whittle this list in front of me down to just former GMs, so no no one currently in the GM or the chief role, um, pick which one of these names you think would be the best fit for what currently is the Red Sox setup. John Daniels, James Click, Brian Sabian, Josh Burns, Dayton Moore. Is there any one of those that jumps out? Is like, you know what? That might be a good fit for them. Daniels and Click would be the two from that list. Um and they're not necessarily that similar. Like I think philosophically, at least, um, they differ on a lot of things. But both are really bright guys. Both have had success in the in the top top job. Um, so you'd really be interviewing them for a job that they've held before with a different franchise, which I also think, um, you know, it's a leg up certainly. And one of those guys could be the president, and one of these other guys I mentioned could end up becoming the GM under them. Um, yeah, I would be fine with either of those. I think both would be pretty good choices. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything that really distinguishes one from the other, like in a, in a way that matters. No, I could say really good things about both guys. And, and I think both guys have things on their track records that they could point to. Um, 
and you know it's interesting john daniels obviously was eventually pushed out after a very very long tenure with texas and what's gone on in texas this year is partly a result of things daniels did towards the end of his tenure there too and you know obviously chris young came in and he's done a lot of really great things too so i think you can share a lot of the credit there but daniels did it took a little while, but he did start to turn the organization back around and begin a rebuild that you're starting to see, you know, hopefully for them, it leads to a playoff spot this year, but at least it's, it's been the best Texas season in quite some time. And I think a lot of that, that seeds that Daniels planted in his last couple of years there, they're finally coming to fruition. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Keith, moving on to some of the recent promotions. Uh, Heston Kerstad is the most recent Orioles call-up. Um, at this point, they're not really calling guys up to fill everyday slots because they don't they don't really need to. Uh, he came in as a pinch hitter in his debut. Um, what uh, you know, this is a guy who was really coveted by a lot of teams at the trade deadline. Is there any way we can offer uh, some sort of pitcher that will get us Kerstad back? Um, what kind of uh, prospect was he? What do you expect he can provide at the major league level? I'll be. I'm really interested to see what he does because if you, um, he was 56th, I think, on my midseason ranking, which was actually a huge move up because this was the first time. So for folks who don't know, Kierstad was the number two pick in the COVID year draft and then got COVID and developed myocarditis and missed all of 2021. So he didn't even make, and then coming into 2022, suffered, I think it was a hamstring injury. And so he didn't even make his professional debut until almost 24 months after he was actually drafted and then they they were super cautious with him which i understand but by the time he got up to kind of an age appropriate level he didn't play that well he looked very tired i saw him a couple times towards the end of the year and it was this guy looks not a hundred percent this year he has this year he has looked every bit like the player the orioles thought they were drafting maybe even better um What's been very interesting about him this year, though, is even in college when he was at Arkansas, uh, he struck out quite a bit. There was a lot of swing and miss, particularly if you just looked at what he did in the SEC, that is, against the best pitching he faced. There was – I had some concerns. He hits the ball extremely hard. This was definitely a batted ball metrics type of pick, but there's swing and miss there. He's still swinging and missing. He's still chasing, but he's cut his strikeout rate substantially. So that, and if you look with two strikes, there's definitely a difference in the approach. Not so much visibly, but in terms of pitch selection and pitch results. Uh, that's the thing I'm most curious to see. How does that carry over? It's right? big league pitchers. They're the best we've got. They've got the best stuff. They've got the best command. They've got the best data. <laughs> so they will attack and he'll have to make adjustments but he's made some really huge adjustments already which when guys do that it gives me a lot of hope that they can continue to do so, so i've said for a while kirstad is a guy who's just kind of all root for because i mean there was a point where it was a question of whether he'd come back and ever look like his old self and so i i think he's a better prospect now i think he is clearly he's made pretty clear improvements versus when he was drafted now we'll see what happens when he faces big league pitching also and because i look at him as somebody who's that's at least an everyday player. I like him more than Colton Kowser, who's another outfielder who I think teams were interested in at the trade deadline. And I think the Orioles and other folks think is potentially an everyday player or better. To me, if just ranking them, right? Kierstad, I'd rather have Kierstad for the next five years than Kowser or than Ryan Mountcastle, for example, whose injury created the opening for Kierstad to come up. So I don't think this is like a trial for Kierstad necessarily, but it's, you know, it's a look. It's a, it's a chance for the Orioles to do a little more evaluating of him against big league pitching as they go into next year with, once again, a position player surplus, surplus that they'll probably want to use to bolster the pitching staff. 
Yep. Uh, you mentioned the strikeout rate, 25.3 percent at high A in 2022, down to 15 uh, percent at double A this year and 20.5 percent at triple A. Completely pal- palatable. Uh, if you can keep it anywhere in that range, that is totally going to work. This is a guy who can be, um, you know, he can be a plus in the on-base department. He can slug for you. Um, I think he can play a couple different positions around the diamond. So uh, we'll see. There, there it's uh, man. Imagine being a, a prospect in the Orioles system right now. It's such a, a a great time to be coming up. Yes, they're going to start winning, but also like you got to fight for your job. There are so many yeah. young guys. <laughs> happen to all look the same too. Happen to all have have like flowing blonde hair. Um, but uh, yeah, you got to find your find your spot. And, and uh, Kirstad is off to um, he's going to be off to a good start. Somebody was um, God. I don't remember who wrote it. Sorry, I like read so much. I'm forgetting who's writing these things. Somebody made a comment the other day about Jackson Holiday, you know, might have to move off shortstop because Gunnar Henderson has been so good there defensively. I'm like, wait, what? Jack, you're moving the number one prospect in baseball in a first overall draft pick off shortstop. And then I stopped to think, and I, my second thought was, that's not that ridiculous, actually, right? They can't both <laughs> play short, right? Somebody's got to move. And all along, I assumed it would be Henderson because he is elite defensively at third base. He's been really good at short. Oh, and by the way, they also have Joey Ortiz who can really play short. And Jordan Westberg who could probably play short for 10 teams in baseball. I mean, they've got got a lot of shortstops. It's a pretty good place to be. Yeah, just feel the nine, you know, nine shortstops out there. That'd be uh, that'd be fantastic. So, uh, moving on, Pete Crow Armstrong gets the call in Chicago as they are um, still trying to make a run at the playoffs. Here, he made a couple uh, fantastic catches out of Coors Field. Like, you feel like that's just a playground for a young player with a ton of speed, with a ton of just fearlessness in center field. Go put him in the center field at Coors. You know what? No one's gonna come near you. Just go after that ball. Uh, Pete Crow Armstrong, um, the bat, still looking for his his first hit. Um, but it's been a, a you know pretty uh, highly acclaimed prospect for for the Cubs for some time ever, ever since they acquired him. What do you expect from uh, from Pete the rest of the way here? You can really play defense. That's the probably yeah. the biggest thing, um, and he'll make the team better. I mean, that's he's the kind of player where his defense could carry him to. I guess he's there, but I mean, in the, in terms of next year, carry him to the majors even before the bat is really ready because he's changed a bit as a hitter. He was much more of a high contact, speed, doubles kind of hitter who got into pro ball, uh, and especially after he got hurt, he played what for a, a week for the Mets. Uh, got hurt, had a season-ending injury, was traded for Javi Baez while he was on the injured list, came back the next year and had made some adjustments to his swing to drive the ball more. Um, I don't know if it really say it was launch angle optimization, but I guess at the end of the day, that's where he ended up. He's putting the ball in the air more at the cost of some contact. And that's kind of what we've seen a little bit this year. More swing and miss than maybe you'd want from that player profile, but he's also getting a lot of results, um, including... What, 20 home runs between double A AA and triple A this year. Like that elite defense in center with at least an adequate on base percentage. It's a little hit by pitch driven, which I don't love because it's not always necessary. I don't think that's as, as predictive as having a high walk rate, for example. And it doesn't point to selectivity the way that a higher walk rate sometimes does. But it's power, it's adequate on base skills, it's elite defense, it's plus speed. He's a very good base runner as well. He's only 21, so there's plenty of reason to think that there will continue to be improvements. My guess, I mean, I really think he should be the everyday center fielder next year, um, regardless of what they do with Cody Bellinger. And then they can and maybe just be patient with the bat, except that you know there might be a, an up-and-down year. It might be a lower batting average and on-base percentage than you're hoping for in year one, but expecting a lot more going forward. Uh, expecting a lot of improvements and knowing that the defense, the base running, and the occasional power will probably carry him to real value, um, even as you're waiting for the bat to continue to develop. The Adolis Garcia injury uh, in Texas made room for Evan Carter on the roster. He's off to a really nice start for the Rangers. Um, a, and again, another uh, prospect feels like we've been waiting for for a long time there. And he's a guy who's who's kept his, his K rate really in check in the minors. And so far, it's been a little issue in the majors. But listen, if I, my first week in the majors, I think I would uh, strike out 100% of the time. So <laughs> um, so he's already flashed some of the things that, that made people so uh, excited. He's got speed. He's got a ton of different tools. Um, so Evan Carter, the long-awaited Evan Carter, he's here. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, too, because they've just it's just been a couple of days, but they've um, 
been playing him in center and Leody yeah. Tavares has only played once as a pinch hitter in the last three games. I think that's right. Um, and so they've got two guys who can definitely play center. I actually think Tavares is a better defender, but Carter's a plus defender too, um, who for one <coughs> position. Right? And I don't know if any of this was aimed at you know, Tavares has had, we talked about him last week. He's taken yep. a step forward this year, whether you want to call it a breakout or not. Fine. He's, he's, absolutely been better this year not only is he just having a better sound like he's hitting the ball harder so and he is still only 24 so there's plenty of reason to think he's got some you know i think maybe next year is the year where it really all comes together for him and you have evan carter who can really play defense who's really shown a great approach um since he first got into pro ball and when he was in the lower minors i thought he's kind of a little too passive um you know more inclined to take even when he gets ahead in the count, I think he has really started to round that off now, and he is attacking a little bit more when he gets ahead in the counts. We'll see how that goes in the big leagues, obviously, but he made adjustments. I keep saying I love players who show me they make adjustments. I love players who are good athletes who show me make adjustments. That's the best combination for me. The only question I really had with Carter is what's the real power upside? Is he just more of a guy who hits, gets on base, doubles, not a lot over the fence power? but plays really good defense, really runs um, runs those deep counts that you're looking for. Like, it's a lot, a lot of good things. Even if he never hits 20 homers in a season in his career, I think Carter ends up an above average or better regular for a long time. And that, again, puts the Rangers in kind of an interesting position where they've got two guys who'd probably play every day in center field for a lot of clubs going into next year. And that's a big decision to make. And they're both homegrown guys, which I just know from working in the front office too. You do tend to want to hang on to those guys, but you know they're they're ours. That's that's our babies, right? We want to keep them. We mentioned uh, last week Jordan Lawler getting the call um, for the Diamondbacks, and they said they weren't. He wasn't going to be their savior. He's going to be the cherry on top of the Sunday. So far, he's been attempting to be the cherry on top of the Sunday. Hasn't gone super super <laughs> well here. Um, he started off his first two hits in his first week in the majors, but neither of them left the infield. So right. um, I think that's, that's my, that would be my, my nightmare scenario is that I'd strike on hundred percent of the time and that my first hit would not leave the infield. Um, so he is, is what sort of what we expected. He's only really hitting against left-handers right now. Um, he's going to be a part-time player the rest of the way for a team trying to make the playoffs. I don't think it's a bad, bad way to handle him. Um, I think he will in a, in a longer run. Uh, I think he'll be fine offensively. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great way to um, break a guy in. I mean, to me, that's like that's similar to the old Earl Weaver philosophy of you believe this young pitcher is going to be a starter in the long term, but break him in in long relief, which for a while we didn't didn't exist. Now we've kind of come back around to the idea of the bulk reliever. It's long relief, mop up as a way to get a guy's feet wet, get him into the major league environment, get him used to the rhythm of the big leagues getting used to the big league clubhouse and schedule and working with the major league coaching staff playing a position player part-time in the month of September. Teams used to do that a lot anyway, when the boot back, when it was, well, just call up the whole 40 man roster in September. We don't care. Obviously there's lots of reasons why teams don't do that anymore, but we are seeing a lot of prospects come up in the month of September. It's, it's more like one per team. And the one thing I would hate to see is a team call up a prospect and they're just not playing at all. Like you're just, you're just be happy to be here. I mean, it's still good for the prospect to get paid, to get service time, but developmentally, that's not the best move. Find a part-time role for him so that he's getting some at-bats or some innings. And if you're just playing Lawler in a platoon, in a platoon situation, fine. It gets him playing a little bit. Even if he starts next year back in AAA, he's already been to the big leagues. And when you do eventually call him back up, it's not his debut, and he's been there before, and he's entering a familiar environment, and he's got a little experience facing big league pitching. Not a ton, but it's not zero. I think there's a big difference between facing any big league pitching and facing zero. I saved the uh, the bummer for last. Jason Dominguez out for the rest of the season, <laughs> out for part of next season with a UCL injury. It's not totally clear if he's going to have Tommy John or some other variation of it. But uh, I think he's I think he's having Tommy John. I feel like yeah, I had so, that last night. So, yeah, late, late last night I saw that, which sucks. Like a reasonable expectation, maybe, is the all-star break. Could be earlier, but listen, if he's going to play center field, you need to make sure that thing's fully healthy. You don't want a situation where he's, like, not fully throwing the ball into the infield. Um, right. So so he obviously had a wonderful first week in the majors. This is the dream. He had uh, four homers. He was setting records. He was invoking Mickey Mantle like we did last week on the show. Um, 
where where do the Yankees go from here? So with center field, because he I think was going to be their uh, had a really good shot to be their opening day center fielder next year. Um, Estevan Florial is going to get for a uh, full run here in the for the rest of the season as they play out the string. Is there is there anyone else uh, ready? Is Florial kind of their best option for next season opening day center fielder? Um, and if so, you think he's ready for that, or uh, is this something they need to go get a center fielder like a Cody Bellinger? I would say I would probably be more inclined. First of all, Florial can't hit. He just cannot. He, he doesn't hit pitch ty- different pitch types. His pitch recognition has really not improved in years. Um, he's still, I mean, he's been repeating AAA, what, three years now? He still strikes out and just swings and misses way too much. I was shocked. I think they had to add him back to the 40-man to bring him back up, if I remember correctly. And that's, you know, that's just, they even they know what he is at this point. Um, he was kind of overhyped as a prospect because he was super toolsy. And all you had to do, honestly, all you had to do was go watch that guy play a couple games. You'd see what he was about. Everson Pereira, on the other hand, is pretty interesting. And yep. he's he may not be 100% ready, but if in the wake of Dominguez having surgery, the Yankees have a reasonable belief he will be back by the middle of next year, that might be an argument to say, we're not going to go get a center fielder. We'll play Pereira in the first for the first half. Maybe you make sure you have one other guy on the roster who can reasonably cover center, assuming you just don't want Judge to do that, just to try to keep him healthy. You have to make sure you've got a really competent fourth outfielder who can play, um, who can play center field, um, you know, maybe twice a week, or who can take over if Pereira gets hurt or if Pereira really struggles. But Pereira can play center field, and if they're, I would be fine with the Yankees doing that if. That's the one place where they're saying we're willing to live with a little less offense because we're waiting on Dominguez to come back rather than going out and spending, committing especially, to another center fielder. What would bother me, you know, just generally or especially if I were a Yankee fan, would be if they said, and we're going to go cheap at three other positions too. The Yankees (laughs) have kind of inclined that way a little bit. Not that they're not spending in total, but they have chosen repeatedly to not go all in for certain positions and that's kind of why that's part of why the Yankees are where they are also part of it is that like the what 80% of their rotation is on the injured list or has been on the injured list or has just been terrible and probably should be on the injured list so that's that's a separate factor but I, I think most GMs would say you can certainly go into a season essentially punting offense at one position because you're developing a player you're really valuing defense or or because the market sucked and you just didn't see an option you wanted you can do that once you start talking about punting two or more positions you're kind of in trouble and maybe talking yourself into something yeah and it feels like the days of Aaron Judge center fielder need to be need to be over um I I think so yeah and so if you can give Florial and Pereira you know equal PT the rest of the way this season. I think that gets sets yeah. you up pretty well entering spring training to figure out what you uh, want to do there. And and if you realize that the Dominguez return is going to be second, late second half of the season or something more extended, then maybe you go out in free agency and do something different there. But if it's a Memorial Day somehow, like if, that's, uh, if they believe he can get the back just two months into the season, maybe that uh, doesn't require well, so much of a delay. Right. You tell him to go hang out with Bryce Harper, right? Guys. Yeah. Right or Marcus Stroman, different injury, but also another go guy learn, who came back. Go learn first base, quickly. kid. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I think Dominguez can really play center. I actually really wonder who, at the end of the day, who's better between him and Pereira defensively and center. They're both really good. Um, Dominguez just has so much more offensive upside. I mean, you saw glimpses of it, and there'll be some ups and downs. He's a baby in in age, but in, also in baseball terms, right? With all the time that you know he had to miss right he was another he missed covid which would have been i think his first full year in pro ball so he's doesn't surprise wouldn't surprise me at all if he had some ups and downs but he's that's the future in center field as long as he comes back and most position players come back fine from tommy john surgery he'll throw well enough to play center field uh he's the future out there i feel much much more strongly that he's because he's the overall package where Pereira. Still very interesting, still toolsy, but does not have Dominguez's upside offensively and, and probably is Dominguez's equal defensively. I don't think he's actually better defensively. But you know, if you're even if you just think all-star break for Dominguez, right? You you can make that work. What they should do, rather than going out and signing a Bellinger for five or seven years or whatever it's gonna take, like find that one or even two-year guy to play center 
and be a fourth outfielder. It's somebody who can really get, go get the ball so that if he's got to be, if Pereira struck out, what's well, like 40-something percent of the time so far in the big leagues this year, so that if Pereira comes out next year and he's still punching out a third of the time and you decide you can't play him, you got to send him down, so that you've got somebody who, if nothing else, he can just go play center field for 60, 70 games while you're waiting for Dominguez to return and just do it on a short-duration contract so that you're not, you don't want to, blocked Dominguez. That to me is the problem with going out and signing yep. a long-term center fielder is at some point Dominguez comes back. Even if Dominguez misses the whole year, which I really, really don't think is going to happen. But still, he's coming back and that should be his job. So don't yeah. create a situation where you've blocked him. Yeah. Um, hey, I wanted to wrap up this prospect segment by bringing up a story that Jonathan Mayo at MLB.com wrote uh, so long as you don't have a blood feud with him. Um, <laughs> Not this week. <laughs> so he wrote a story that I thought was really interesting this week that this year um, they've seen from their top 100 preseason list, they've seen a record number of um, – uh, call-ups from that list and a record number of players from that list playing because some of them debuted um, you know, prior seasons or still uh, were prospect eligible at the start of the season. So I, I just did a, a quick count of your top 100, um, and I think it's 52 of your top 100 um, have played in the majors this year, and I could have missed a couple just from not realizing who got called up at some point for a, a cup of coffee. Um, 29, 29 of your top 50. Um, how abnormal do you think this is, and, and what do you think are maybe some reasons why we're seeing more top prospects um, at the major league level? I I don't know if it's a record. I would bet it's a record. I think it's abnormal. I think it's a really high rate in, of promotions to the big leagues, major league debuts, and probably of graduations, too, of guys who've played enough that they will not be eligible for my list this winter. And it's not true of anybody who just got called up in the last three weeks, but a lot of guys got called up earlier this season. Um, that is going to be true. Uh, there are, I can think of a bunch of possible reasons. I'll go, I'll do three and I'll do them very quickly. One is just in general, right? Teams have realized a lot of these guys are ready and they're ready young, right? We've just seen guys get to the majors at 22, 21, 20 and be really, really productive. So that's definitely driven a change in decision-making. Two is I think the rules changes about having a guy on your opening day roster and there the whole year and he gets, uh, I think, what is it, top three in the rookie of the year voting? You get an extra draft pick? Um, whatever exactly that rule is, I may be misquoting it, but um, that's absolutely driven decision-making. I think we've got pretty clear evidence that it has. And everyone looked at Seattle this year where they had the regular pick, the extra pick for uh, Julio winning rookie of the year, and then the extra pick from the competitive balance lottery. So they had three picks between like 21 and 30, I think it was, and lots of money to spend. And they went all in. They went all upside with those three picks. Trust me, a lot of other teams were talking about that. And a lot of other directors were jealous, right? Oh, I'd like to have that. Everybody wants the extra picks. The extra picks are gold in the draft, whether you use them to get an extra high ceiling player or just take that money to go higher ceiling and get somebody who's sort of above your, your pick level somewhere else in the draft. Um, so that's the second one. And then the, the third thing is a little bit less fortunate, I would say. But I think that just yeah, a lot of guys are getting hurt. Right? And I do think we're seeing a lot of pitchers get hurt, especially. Um, and I don't know if that's the pitch clock. You know, the elbow epidemic predates the use of the pitch clock. But I don't think the pitch clock is helping either. I just think we, we have seen a lot of guys get hurt this year. And I don't know offhand um, if that's actually higher. It feels like it's higher. Feelings aren't facts, but I think that's also driving a lot more of these guys getting to the big leagues. Um, and so, you know, I will say the silver lining for me is it makes my offseason prospect list really interesting to write um, because it's going to be there's just going to be huge, huge changes for me. And that's that is fun. I enjoy that. I do not love it when it's I wrote about all these guys already. I've been writing about these guys for, you know three freaking years, right? I mean, trust me, I love Leo de Tavares. I was real glad when he graduated. I'm, like, I'm done <laughs> writing about this guy. We're, we're good. I'll write about this guy when he's on my breakouts list three years from now. And then we finally got there this year. But he was like, he was threatening to break some kind of record for the most years on my top 100. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird record to have. Yeah, um, nobody wants that. <laughs> you're like, thanks for having me on there again. Uh, yeah. Right, wish I didn't right. qualify okay, anymore. grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, let's see, what was the other point? Oh, the other point that, that a couple of the jams that Jonathan yeah, talked yeah. Uh, to was was that the COVID year uh, slowed development down so much 
that in 2021 we just had so few guys debut. Yeah, that's um, it fair. ended up being like a, you're hitting pause on the whole the whole operation, and so there's a backlog, and they're finally getting to the majors. So many top level guys ready for the majors by now. Yeah, that year we are still seeing the effects of the lost year, and and then the compressed year the next year. The minors didn't start for an extra month the following year, which has actually led to something good, which is our minor league seasons are now running a little deeper into September at Double A. Uh, just wraps up. It, high A just wrapped up the regular season last weekend. Double A runs this week, and then Triple A runs even another week too. And you're seeing teams now make use of that, right? Bump a guy up. The Orioles did this. Sammy Basayo, um, who's their top catching prospects, the Orioles really need is another catcher. Uh, they bumped him up from High A Aberdeen to Bowie because Aberdeen season ended, so they bumped him up to Bowie. Same time, the Nats bumped up. Yohandy Morales and Andrew Pinckney, who were both from this year's draft, who were in high Wilmington, bumped them up to Harrisburg. So I went and saw all of those guys on Tuesday night, actually, because the A, a seasons were over. Those two teams happened to play each other in the last series of the year, um, regular season series of the year in double A. And so a lot of teams are just saying, well, we want to keep these guys playing. We'll just keep moving them up the chain. And then what ends up happening is, oh, he finished the year in double A. Oh, Jackson Holiday finished the year in triple A. I think they only moved him up to triple A to keep him playing for a little bit longer, which is great. That's, that's, you know, I don't think it speeds him to the majors necessarily, but it does set him up to at least start next year at the higher level, and that's never a bad thing if you believe a guy is ready. Also, you might get there and you discover something that's, oh my God, this guy can't hit pitch X in position Y or something. Okay, great. You go into the offseason. Hey, we know what we got to work on, right? Whether it's instructs or just sending him home with instructions for the winter, whatever. We got a new thing to work on. We got you double A the last week or two of the season. And something popped up. Now we have more information. So it's to me, and that may speed some guys to the majors. I think we'll see in the next year or two um, if that's actually happening. The other bit of um, GM slash president of baseball ops news of the week. I wanted to ask you quickly about Mike Rizzo not being fired. Uh, Rizzo got uh, <laughs> or let fired or, or like not let go either. He's getting a multi-year extension here. This was expected, but not a fait accompli because they had given. Uh, Davey Martinez an extension, and they didn't do the, the um, jam at the same time, so it's a little strange. The The situation that Nationals are in, they obviously traded off all of their stars uh, in return for a bunch of prospects. Those prospects are either reaching the majors or getting closer, um, so they're going to stay the course here with the guy who won the World Series a couple years back. What situation do you see the Nationals in? Do you think it's, it's right to not rock the boat by uh, going to find a new leader? I think that the Nats, I mean, obviously Rizzo's, he led the team to the only championship in franchise history, even including all the years in Montreal, um, oversaw many, many years of contention there. And now we're, well, honestly, since the Soto trade, we are seeing the beginning of a rebuild there. And I mean, a real rebuild, not the, not a, not a going to the press and the fans and saying, we're going to rebuild now that this is actually, there are prospects in this system now. This Nats system is the strongest it's been in probably 12 years, maybe more, since the Strasburg-Harper cohort completely graduated. I don't think they've had depth like this. There's depth. That Harrisburg club, like Morales didn't play after all that the night I went there. And I looked around, I'm like, actually, there's no, I don't know where you'd play him. Actually, everybody, oh, there's a prospect playing at every, basically every position where he could have played. Um, great position to be in, right? The system is is definitely looking a lot stronger. They're also in the situation where they're going to need some pitching at some point. Um, common, common theme around baseball. What I did find interesting, though, is there were a slew of changes leading up to the Rizzo extension where they reassigned, I think, Chris Klein, who'd been the scouting director there for, I think since Rizzo got the job in 09, um, the longtime international director, I think he may have had a VP title, Johnny DiPuglia, actually just quit. They let go of a ton of scouts, mostly pro scouts, which is very not Rizzo-like at all. Rizzo himself is a scout at heart, came up through scouting. So I'm not entirely sure what's going on with some of this. Like, we'll give you the extension, but you've got to cut overhead. Are they going to replace some of those scouts? Are they just cutting costs just to try to sell the team and then new owners will come in and maybe allow them to spend again. Like the last thing you want to see if you're a team rebuilding is um, if you're a fan of a team rebuilding is they just whack the scouting department. And that would absolutely concern me if I were a Nats fan. But I also, if I were a Nats fan, I would say, Hey, there's pretty good things happening on this system right now. Rizzo did this once. I am willing to let him 
try to do it again. And and I, I see, like I said, I think the direction here is is so far so good. Hey, and the the big win of their last week, they got <laughs> Steven Strasburg to unretire. To unretire, so, uh, how about that's that? That's not happening. Who said he was retiring? He's not retiring. Yeah, scrap that. Scrap that press conference. No press conference. No retiring. Um, he still can't pitch, unfortunately. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Um, Keith, I wanted to end with uh, your look back you wrote this week. Uh, guys, you were wrong about. You started with a guy uh, I haven't heard much about, uh, a guy named Shohei Otani. Uh, what did you learn about Shohei doing this exercise? You kind of did a deep dive into why you were wrong when he was signing out of Japan. The thing that surprised me the most so I had seen video of him. I, I've still never been to Japan. Um, I need to rectify that at some point. But I talked to a lot of scouts who had seen him, and everyone said, this guy's an ace. He's he's like a number one starter. He could win Cy Young Awards, and he's a crazy athlete. 80 runner, huge power. But the way he, literally the way he swung the bat as well as his approach, and I think a little bit of the way that pitching is different in Japan than it is here, there's a lot of questions of whether he'd hit enough, uh, make enough contact to be an effective hitter here, combined with the fact that it's really just hard to do both things. There's a reason almost nobody's ever done it. Um, in the last, especially in the last 50 years, really nobody's done it regularly. Um, and so my expectation going into this was, hey, look, we all knew Otani, you, you could go out, his swing would get long, the way he got his hands extended, you could beat him in under his hands, inner third, just off the inside part. Those were clear weaknesses. Obviously, he's closed those up wasn't that simple and it turned out it was a lot of little things and i spoke to some folks with the angels too people who'd been around otani and the consistent thing was this guy works like crazy if you think there's if he thinks there's anything that's a vulnerability he's just going to attack it until he overcomes it and i think you can see that because it's it's at least four different things that i could identify that he's changed just from year one when he did strike out, I think something like 28% of the time to now when he's got, it might be the lowest or the second lowest strikeout rate of his major league career. And it's lower. He's striking out less now in the majors than he did his last two years in Japan, which is crazy, right? Japan, I think NPB is great. That is a lower level of competition 
than Major League Baseball, certainly on a night in, night out over the course of a season, right? Guys don't, strikeout rates don't go down. I mean, that just only further underscores what a unique player he is that he could do that. And that was what I found interesting. I thought, you know what, I'm going to go into this. I'm going to find one, maybe two things that are pretty clear. Hey, he made this particular adjustment. The other guys on my list made some very clear single change that I could point to. It's like, that's why this player turned out to be a lot better than I thought he would. In Otani's case, it was a whole bunch of things, which makes him even more interesting, right? He really is the great outlier, maybe the biggest outlier I've seen. And I don't just mean the fact that he hits and pitches at the same time, which would be enough to make him an outlier. It's why everyone calls him a unicorn. It's how he got to that point that makes him so incredibly interesting. And as I said, also a warning, right? Teams that are going after... God, the Giants just keep drafting these two-way guys. They joke about it. They think they recognize they're not all they're not going to stay two-way guys. But still, if you think you're chasing the next Otani, best of luck. I don't think there's another one. And I certainly wouldn't bet on or invest a lot of money in any player thinking he's going to do this. If he does, wonderful. I will be thrilled. But the bet, the smart betting is always against. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned in your um, your Red Sox story that uh, Masataka Yoshida was running strikeout rates of like seven and eight percent in japan and he comes over here and it's 13 uh not bad that's not still bad a great strikeout great rate by MLB for that, yes. yeah for that hitting like for that profile yeah that's what you want but uh but you're just not supposed to go that direction and, right. and that's what Shohei has done and fixing holes cl- closing up spots where pitchers tried to attack him and, and uh not having such an issue facing same-handed pitching too it's it's outrageous, um, and a guy that we heard a lot less about entering this year, Justin Steele, you also had on your list. He's come out of nowhere for a lot of people. However, he's been around. Um, <clears throat> the concern for a long time was he didn't have a wealth of, you know, he didn't have a five-pitch mix he could throw out there. And coming from the left side, not having elite velocity, there was concern that, um, you know, wasn't going to be anything special as far as a pitcher for the Cubs. Um, so the, the success he's had, he's, you know, up there for, NL Cy Young conversation, the ERA title in the National League. When you see a two-ish pitcher, a pitch pitcher like him, you see Spencer Strider, of course, like very two-pitch pitchy. Um, is that going to change anything developmentally? Like, will, will teams try to mimic that and say, never mind, you don't need to have it? Or is this just like these are, these are I don't want to say unicorn again, but like outliers where you can't plan on being a sort of like shorthanded pitcher? Um, mm-hmm. But if you but if you only have two pitches and they're great, it can it can be fine. It, it's a great question because Steele in Steele's case in particular, the if you look at I think the Savant page, it's just four seamer and slider. But in actuality, if you start if you talk to people who've who've watched him, if you talk to Cubs people, if you go a little deeper into the data, actually the pitch by pitch data. He kind of throws three pitches. I keep calling him two and a half because I think he specifically does not call it a cutter. But he kind of throws a cutter and he kind of throws a four-seamer. And there's enough of a distinction between the two that I think it's fair to think of them as two different pitches. And then he's got the wipeout slider. The thing he's always been able to do is spin the ball. When I saw him in 2018 um, as a starter in fall league, it it was a 90-93, I think, pretty straight fastball. But I was like, Delivery works. He can spin it. He throws strikes. Why couldn't this guy be a fifth starter? Which at the time seemed wildly optimistic. And then, you know, and then lots of things happened before he got to this point. But I, I, you know, that's all in the story. But adding the cutter is, I think, the thing that made the real difference for him or distinguishing between the two, having some two different looks to the fastball. How about we put it that way? Use his his uh, nomenclature for it. It, it to your question strider to me is the great great outlier where there we have two pitch pitchers we have two pitch starters they nearly always are some kind of fastball fastball sinker cutter you know two four seam or whatever and then a change of pace pitch a change up or splitter that allows those pitchers to minimize guys on the other side of the plate i mean michael waka was kind of always is really a two-pitch pitcher. Yeah, he's got a show-me breaking ball. It's never been very good. He just can't spin the ball. But he's had an incredible change-up since he was in college. And that is why he's had the career that he's had. Um, so to me, that is, like, that's the formula if you want to just break it down very, very simply. And cutters sometimes function that way, right? Depends on the cutter, depends on the shape, depends on the pitcher. But sometimes the cutter becomes the pitch. I mean, that, I still hear this. You can't get a guy to turn over a change-up. His hand doesn't work for a splitter, right? Try a cutter. 
it's the it's generally further down the list because most people will tell you you can usually teach a guy a decent enough changeup, but some guys just can't do it right they can't they can't mentally just sort of turn it off to not throw as hard as possible um they can't turn it over as easily they just don't have that sort of flexibility there could be lots of reasons so the, the cutter does sometimes fall into that category and what makes strider interesting is that he's not it's that his fastball itself is so unusual and again like he's a great outlier awesome job by atlanta across the board like all credit to them and to the kid obviously too but i don't like that's not a paradigm shift for me right I, i'm always on the lookout for guys like that where i get you know part of the purpose of this exercise too is okay how do i get it right next time what did, what did I miss? What could be different? Um, what should I be more aware of next time? And you know, to me, Strider, who I think I mentioned last year in passing, even though I generally don't react to just a single year on guys, but he was just so interesting. It was like, hey, I never ranked this guy, really wrote about, called him a reliever when he was out of, out of the draft. Um, and you know, to me, it's, I wouldn't change my thinking on that because that pitch is so unusual for him. It's an extreme outlier. And I don't know that I would ever see another fastball and be confident enough to say that's a Spencer Strider fastball. This guy is different. Yeah, it could lead to you overrating guys who don't have a whole lot other yeah. than a fastball that looks good against lower level competition. Yeah, right. So. We love those. Hey, those fastballs that miss a ton of bats. I love them too. I, you know, I've become sort of like a little bit of an old man yelling at a cloud here, but like I miss good fastballs. Right? Everyone's it's all just right. Oh, everybody's got eighty breaking balls, and then you know, it's all, I just miss guys who could pitch with their fastball. Spencer Strider's really freaking fun to watch. Like that's a guy I would turn on a game just to watch him pitch. Watch a guy just blow guys away with his fastball. It's like peak Clemens. I remember being with the Blue Jays and Bartolo Colon one hit us. And almost the entire game was just four and two seamers. He was just that good. This was like peak, peak. It had to be 02, 03, somewhere in there. Somebody could probably find the game. Like, okay, I didn't like losing, obviously. But also, I remember watching that game thinking, I, I, I'm watching something pretty great here. Like, this is, this is amazing. To be at the ballpark and see something like that and somebody basically doing it with two variations of a single pitch, that's pretty great. I, I love guys like that. They are super fun. But also, you've got to watch. Like, I referred to... Otani, it's like, is it back? Are these black swan events? Like, you don't want to change your whole way of thinking when you see some extreme outlier. I've always said this on Chris Sale, just kind of bring it back to where we started, too. Yeah, I whiffed on Chris Sale, but every time I see a guy with a Chris Sale type of arm action in college, especially if he doesn't have much of a breaking ball, which Sale did not have in college, not until he got to the White Sox, did he develop that slider? Of course, I'm going to bet against those guys. Guys who pitch like that do not end up starters for lots of reasons, not the least of which is they break down. And Sale was really unusual in that he held up for over a thousand innings before he had any elbow trouble. Great for him. I'll take that L. But I'm not going to change how I think about that because I do still believe he's the great outlier. We really haven't seen another guy like Chris Sale since he came on the scene. Yeah. And um, the other two guys mentioned on this, I'm going to leave Daniel as a carrot for the reader. Um, a couple of more guys. One of them I actually mentioned in very brief passing in this episode. But yep. go check that Go check that story out. Um, so last one for you, Keith. Was there one name that you almost put on this list or that you considered you're stashing away for next year as a guy you maybe were wrong on? That's a good question. No, I don't think so. I ended up reaching a little. This this piece originally had three names on it, and I'm open to doing as many as I need. To. It's not like I don't limit it. I mean, I knew all season. Wait, you're so wrong. You're is, wrong about that many guys. I'm wrong about a lot of guys. <laughs> so one of my readers pointed out I probably put out opinions on seven to eight hundred players a year if you count prospect rankings, draft rankings. Like it's a lot, and it's like it makes me feel a little bit better. Um, but when I put to put a guy on this list, generally I want to see a season and a half to two seasons of real performance, like re, and really breaking what I said because it's like, all right, we've got enough of a sample size here that there's something to there's some meat here, something to talk about, um, and so I want to go that I want to get that much um, before leaning into it because then also there's more more to chew on, there's more to talk about. You know who actually I just pulled up some some just some quick I just pulled up fan graph rankings. There was one more. Ha Seong Kim, he's turned into a way, way better hitter, right? It just did not. I mean, God, nobody. Good credit to the Padres. They obviously saw something. People I know who've seen him in the KBO, right, this, the bat is not going to work here. And elite defender, and he's turned into an elite defender. But, yeah, he's turned into a much, much better hitter here. 
And he might be a candidate for next year. He could have been on it this year, certainly. He was – the re main reason he got cut is just wasn't quite enough interesting to talk about too. I mean there's got to be enough to chew on. Um, but maybe by next year I will put him on there. And, you know, readers do make suggestions. Readers often, you know, sometimes not so politely but mostly politely bring up certain players, ask about certain players. And often my answer, you know, I'll either say, look – Here's what I said about him, and I don't think I was far off. Or I'll say, yeah, that's a great example. Somebody did put a good example in my comments. Now I'm drawing a blank on who it was. Um, but there are lots of playwrights, shades of gray. How wrong was I? Like for this column, I want to be really wrong. Those are way more interesting to talk about than I, I was kind of wrong. I said he was a 55 and he's a 60. That's not that interesting. I want the player where I said he was going to be a 45, a below average regular, and he's making all-star teams. Those are the good ones to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone mentioned Jordan Alvarez. I don't know if that's the one you're talking about, but that was the one. Yeah, that was the one. Also, I couldn't remember. I thought I'd mentioned him in a previous column. D those DH types are really tough. I do struggle with them because I used to overrate them. Because I was like, this guy's gonna freaking hit. Doesn't matter where he plays. Yeah, it turns it turns out it kind of does matter. Um, and there, were, when he was a prospect too, there were all kinds of whispers about he's gonna. He's got all these knee problems. He's not gonna hold up physically. And then he did have knee surgery. I think he had two. It's like, yep, there it is. To his credit, though, he has held up and continued to hit extremely well, extremely, extremely well. Like he has, you know, it's near the, 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 the what are you, the 90th percentile type of outcome for that kind of player. But also, there were signs, right? There were he, there were, there was plenty to look at when he was a prospect to say he was going to be a top 100 type of guy. I think he appeared on a midseason top 50 for me once, and and that was it. That was the. the best I ever said about him. And then I backed off a bit because there were concerns about position and durability. And um, the position thing has been true, but the durability really hasn't. And obviously he's hitting at the very top end of the scale and it, he would fit. If I haven't put him on one in the past, maybe he'll be on next year's. He certainly belongs on one of these columns. Yep, and he just hit the uh, hardest hit homer by an Astros player in the Statcast era, which we all remember is Statcast era. Uh, what a yes. what a baseball era that one is, 2015 to today. <laughs> it's better than calling something the steroid era. At least yeah. we're naming this after something good. Gosh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, he's one of those players where like you know you you settle on as a prospect. He's DH only. He's really only gonna be able to handle that. But in this case, DH only is all he has to really do. And he it's trots true. out there to left field a couple times a season, and actually like more than I expect. But uh, but uh, he does enough with his bat to, to more than make up for it. Uh, Keith, we're going to hit the exits. Thanks to the listener for uh, tuning in today. Thanks to Tim McMaster, the mayor of Starkville, for producing today's show. You can find all of Keith's work um, at theathletic.com. Subscribe to The Athletic for $2 per month for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. The Athletic Baseball Show will be back on Monday. Have a great weekend.